So everybody know what happened yesterday. Our party came out with a statement, and we spread it wide and clear. I'm 73. I never saw anything like I saw what happened yesterday. I've been around for a long time. As a person who took history as my major in the university, I have never seen anything like this before I was ever born. Never saw anything like this. The closest, I would say, was an attempted coup in the 1932 or 33 against President Roosevelt. Um, that didn't even see the light of day. It was an attempted coup by Wall Street, and nothing happened with that. It didn't even get off the drawing board. So what happened yesterday was actually the first time since the 1700s, something called Shays' Rebellion against the federal government. And that's 300 years ago, comrades, 300 years ago. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I was actually seeing an attempt of taking over the federal government from the right. And the things I thought about when I saw this in front of me was 1924, Germany, when Hitler tried to take over the Weimar Republic. It was called a push. They went to a beer hall where they sold beer, and it was from there they tried to do it, and they failed. From that, Hitler was sent to prison because of his involvement. And in prison, he wrote Mein Kampf, My Struggle, which was the work of Hitler of how he was going to destroy Bolshevikism in the Soviet Union and get rid of the Jewish question, as he called it. So that's the first time in history. So I'm looking at this thing on the TV. I can't believe it. The next thing that came to my mind, and this is really interesting, was the movies I saw of 1917 when Lenin and the Bolsheviks stormed the Winter Palace in Petrograd. They stormed it, and it reminded me of the same kind of thing. Of course, it's totally different. One is from the left, and one is from the right. But the very act, the very existence of a revolutionary act reminded me of that. Therefore, because of that, we decided to change our class tonight and to have it on a couple of issues by William Forster, Clara Zetkin, and Michael Parenti on what fascism is and how it takes hold. And that's my introduction. Good evening, comrades. There are three sections to this reading. We may only get to two tonight because before Round Robin begins, comrade is going to read the statement from the Politburo on what happened last night. Okay, this passage is from Black Shirts and Reds by Michael Parenti. This is from chapter one. Years ago, I used to say that fascism never succeeded in solving the irrational contradictions of capitalism. Today, I am of the opinion that it did accomplish that goal, but only for the capitalists, not for the populace. Fascism never intended to offer a social solution that would serve the general populace, only a reactionary one, forcing all the burdens and losses onto the working people. Divested of its ideological and organizational paraphernalia, fascism is nothing more than a final solution to the class struggle, the totalistic submergence and exploitation of democratic forces for the benefit and profit of higher financial circles. Fascism is a false revolution. It cultivates the appearance of popular politics and a revolutionary aura without offering a genuine revolutionary class content. A new order while serving the same old moneyed interests. 
Its leaders are not guilty of confusion, but of deception. That they do work hard to mislead the public does not mean that they themselves are misled. That was from Black Shirts and Red by Michael Parenti. The next excerpt is going to be from William C. Foster. The book is called The History of the Three Internationals. This part is called What Fascism Is. And after this excerpt, we'll open it up to questions. Quote, in view of the widespread confusion as to just what fascism signified, particularly with regard to the false liberal social democratic interpretation that it was a revolt of the middle class, comrade Georgi Dimitrov paid considerable attention to the question of the definition of fascism. He reiterated the famous analysis of the 13th meeting from the executive committee of the Comintern that, quote, fascism is the open terrorist dictatorship of the most reactionary, most chauvinistic, and most imperialist elements of finance capital, unquote. This placed the responsibility for this murderous movement where it belonged and where the workers could understand it, in the office of the monopolist bankers and the capitalists of the world. Quote, fascism is not superclass government, nor a government of the petty bourgeoisie, nor a government of the lumpen proletariat over finance capital. Fascism is the power of finance capital itself. It is the organization of terrorist vengeance against the working class, against the revolutionary sections of the peasantry and intelligentsia. In foreign policy, fascism is jingoism in its crudest form, fomenting bestial hatred of other nations. Fascism is not an evidence of the growing strength of capitalism. Fascism is evidence of the developing weakness of capitalism. It is an expression of the decay of the capitalist system. Quote, the fascist dictatorship of the bourgeoisie is a ferocious power, but an unstable one. Unquote. Fascism is not inevitable. The German working class could have prevented it, but in order to do so, it should have achieved a united anti-fascist proletarian front. The accession to power of fascism is not an ordinary succession of one bourgeois government by another, but a substitution of one state form of class domination of the bourgeoisie, which is bourgeois democracy, by another form, open terrorist dictatorship. The policy of the Social Democrats leads to the victory of fascism, and they bear basic historical responsibility for the establishment of fascism in Germany and other countries. Fascism takes on various forms in the different countries in accordance with the national peculiarities. The most savage type is that in Germany. Fascism wins mass support by a, this is important comrades, a pretended defense of the people's immediate interests. Fascism aims at the most unbridled exploitation of the masses. Fascism delivers up to the people to be devoured by the most corrupt and venal elements. Fascism acts in the interests of the extreme imperialists, but it prevents itself to the masses in the guise of a champion of an ill-treated nation and appeals to outraged national sentiments. That is going to end the first section of reading. On the point about fascism as a revolt of the middle class, I think we should think back to yesterday. Many, if not the majority of those who entered the capital were of middle class nature coming from state employment, petty bourgeois property relations, and the labor aristocracy. But some made the erroneous observation that this coup was their doing, but dismisses the purposeful cultivation of reaction by the most reactionary, most chauvinistic, and most imperialist elements of finance capital. These people were pawns, 
with the real culprits hidden behind Trump, who himself is part of reactionary finance capital. I think it's troubling that it, some people are very dogmatic in the left. In spite of everything, looking at a situation and seeing that it's identical to what Dimitrov and to what Parenti is saying, what fascism comes from, there are people on the left who still, to this day, refuse to see Trump as a bearer and instigator of fascism. Somehow they have this false, incorrect analysis, according to my opinion, that Trump is just as bad as Biden. It's not. That's a sectarian attitude that the Seventh Common Turn got rid of. The Seventh Common Turn got rid of that idea that they're just the same. They have different levels. One is the velvet glove that would be Biden, and the other one is the iron fist of fascism that would be Trump. So some of our people have not learned anything from the 1936 Seventh Congress of the Communist International. That's all. My question is about the quote about the policy of the Social Democrats leading to the victory of fascism. I guess I'm wondering, to what extent is the Democratic Party, which is in some ways trying to position itself as a Social Democrat movement, responsible? But also, why is the fascist movement happening in the United States, which is not a social democracy, as opposed to in, say, Western European countries, which are much more social democratic? It is happening in Europe much more Eastern Europe, but I think it's starting to take hold in Western Europe. Even like Germany is seeing a resurgence. I mean, if you look at the UK, it is happening. It's not just here. We have to remember that social Democrats as an ideology are part of our heritage. As Angela has said in the past, it was the Russian Social Democratic Party that split and formed the Mensheviks and Bolsheviks. So just because certain sort of minor social democratic policies may be being implemented in the United States, I would say that that's distinct from social democratic parties in terms of how they historically have acted in the past. And I don't necessarily know if that specific line applies as much to this situation as it did in Germany, just because the German social democratic party was much bigger than any even mildly social democratic party that exists in the U.S. So there is no question that what happened yesterday was basically our version of the Beer Hall Putsch. I think in the statement we call it the Capitol Hill Putsch, I think that's accurate. They were fully prepared to kill Congress people. They had guns. They had a bunch of zip ties. With this in mind, fascism is on the way. It was 1923-24 when the Beer Hall Putsch happened, 1933 when Hitler took power. And we all know what happened after that. So my question is, what did communists do right and wrong in those years between? And how can we not make the same mistakes? But what do communists do when fascists take power? Other than die most of the time. But like, what can we do? The final section, which we may not get to tonight, is going to be called the new tactical orientation. And it talks about in the midst of the changing global circumstances, this is specific to the common turn, but how it adjusted itself in accordance with the new situations. But from what I've learned is that our best bet, and Foster will go into this in the reading, is an anti-fascist united front. 
which involves all segments of the working class that are opposed to the elements that would have supported what happened yesterday. Does that make sense? Yeah, I would be in agreement with that. I think a united front is our last best option right now. We did a few months ago a class on the united front in the years around World War II, and the video has been uploaded to YouTube on the People's School account, and you can find the whole class for that there. I also wanted to ask about the quote about the policy of the Social Democrats. I don't quite understand what that really means. Um, if I could just get some, a little more clarification. I can sort of briefly go into it, but I'm sure someone can elaborate. So the reason that Foster is referencing this is because in Germany, it was the Social Democratic Party that murdered leaders of the, the German Communist Party. And it was that sectarianism within the left that was spearheaded by the social democrats within germany during the time of the rise of fascism which sort of paved the way for the fascist rise because there wasn't a unified opposition to that fascism but that would be my immediate response so the social democracy as outlined in the previous congress the sixth congress of the communist international so social democracy confuses the labor movement and it confuses the workers from their real political aims for the dictatorship of the proletariat and so it builds the foundation of fascism because the workers do not understand the development of fascism or how to prevent it since social democracy has confused them. Thank you, comrades. And it's also it has to do with the fact that these people don't analyze fascism in a class context. That's one thing that's really helpful for us as Marxists, specifically Marxist-Leninists, is that we can apply a class context to our analysis of fascism, whereas a lot of liberal idealists and essentially people who we would qualify as utopian do not factor in class to their analysis of fascism, and the definition becomes not concentrated. Remember, we're communists. We know who the enemy is. The enemy is the capitalist class. The handmaiden to the enemy is the middle class. Social democracy represents basically the middle class. Whenever there's a middle class, they're not our friend, they're our enemy. But, here's the but. Here's what we realized. Who is our enemy? The immediate enemy. The immediate enemy is not someone in our working class movement who's a misleader like the social democrats are. Our immediate enemy is the Nazi and the fascist, because they want to destroy the trade union movement. And that's obvious for Trump, what his positions are. They want to destroy the labor movement. They want to destroy our class as a whole. And therefore, who is our immediate enemy? It is not social democracy right now. It is fascism. Once we defeat fascism, then I think it's proper for us to now go to our next enemy, which is social democracy. That's all. Thank you. With the way that the way that neoliberalism presents itself to a lot of people in the working class and the definition of fascism being the brutal operations of finance capital, how do we redirect the masses away from associating neoliberalism with fascism, which is very hard to not associate considering the fact that it is a brutal dictatorship of finance capital just towards certain parts of the population and not have them be confused with the actual rise of fascism that we are seeing in the country now. Even I and many others I know are confused, like was mentioned earlier, how the Velvet Glove versus the Iron Fist. I mean, 
people do equate neoliberalism with fascism, and I don't think that it's completely unreasonable that some people would make that mistake. But how do we clarify it when these are just when the visive optics are this is just a small push of ordinary people or what it seems to be versus the neoliberal class who is actually enacting violence against working class people. Yeah, I'd like to answer that. Comments is very simple. Many people in the communist movement who call themselves communists and they're not or in the socialist movement, these are already basically radicals. These are radicals. They're not communists. But many people in the radical left movement, anything that's reactionary, they call fascists. I went through that whole period with those people. They used to spell America, A-M-E-R-I-K-K-K-A. That is not, if you constantly call everything fascist, when the real thing comes along, you have lost your tool in order to fight against it. You cannot call it fascism because you've been calling it fascism for the past 20 years. So what are you going to say? Now it's a little more fascist and less fascist? It's crazy. You're either pregnant or you're not pregnant. You're not a little pregnant. So that's all i got to say. We have to have a correct analysis. And therefore we should not, N-O-T, big letters, we should not call reactionary movements fascism. Until they come to a period in their development when they destroy the working class movement, then we can call them fascism. That's it. Thank you. So in order to undermine the stronghold that social democracy or in America what William Z. Foster called the technocracy is to lead the workers in a practical struggle to move beyond the confines of economism where the concerns are mainly for raises in pay, better working conditions, into the political struggle. And in order to do that, we have to fight against the technocratic language and the technocratic policies of the Democratic Party, who stranglehold the movement and lead it into dead ends. What would be the proper analysis of the moments where Capitol Police actually allowed the rioters to actually go into the Capitol building or possible collusion with them. What would be the proper analysis of that? The first thing that comes to my mind is class collaboration. I mean, that's the first thing that pops into my mind is you have elements of the bourgeoisie, obviously, these policemen that are protecting the Capitol building. But then I'm sure everyone has already made this distinction, but it's very clear that these police are not treating these Trump protesters in the same way that they were treating people who were essentially marching on the streets and doing parades, protesting George Floyd in the summer. There's a clear distinction between how the police are treating these different groups of people, and I would refer to it as class collaboration. No, I absolutely agree with that, actually, because on that very equal point, everybody seems to make this distinguishment that they're different from us, but we have the same jobs. We go to the same place. We're all furloughed and fired at the same damn time. The things that we're fighting for are different, yeah, but this is obviously... The cops, there's videos everywhere showing about how they're waving them in. Yeah, come on in, go on in. It's a little racially motivated in my mind. Just want to clarify, like, as Dimitrov said, fascism is the most reactionary, most chauvinistic and imperialist elements of finance capital. The actions of the police that are in collusion with these terrorists shows both its reactionary character and its chauvinistic character. In its anti-communist, anti-worker character, 
in supporting a push, but also its racial preference for these white people who are obviously the most reactionary white people. And though it shows it's racism, which, of course, Malcolm X said you can't have capitalism without racism here in America, especially. So it just clarifies and shows in plain view what Dimitrov was talking about. That's all I have to say. My statement is only that my big takeaway from watching the events unfurl last night and watching how the reactionary people reacted to the events was they aren't focusing on the cops that waved them in. They're focusing on the lady that died wrapped in a Trump flag and was killed by cops. And this, I think, in my opinion, and it could be wrong, is going to do nothing but embolden the people who were only slightly radicalized or only tangentially followed, you know, the QAnon or whatever alt-right thing is going on these days. And it's going to make them closer to hardliners, and it's going to do nothing but make them think they have a martyr already. Okay, we're going to go back to the reading now. So section right now is called The Struggle Against Fascism by Clara Zetkin. This is called The Social Roots of Fascism. Quote, we as communists view fascism as an expression of the decay and the disintegration of the capitalist economy and as a symptom of the bourgeois state's dissolution. We can combat fascism only if we grasp that it rouses and sweeps along broad social masses who have lost the earlier security of their existence, and with it, often, their belief in social order. Fascism is rooted, indeed, in the dissolution of the capitalist economy and the bourgeois state. There were already symptoms of the proletarianization of bourgeois layers in pre-war capitalism. The war shattered. This is, she's talking about World War I. This was written in 1923, so she's talking about World War I. The war shattered the capitalist economy down to its foundations. This is evident not only in the appalling impoverishment of the proletariat, but also in the proletarianization of very broad petty bourgeois and middle bourgeois masses, the calamitous conditions among small peasants, and the bleak distress of the quote-unquote intelligentsia. The plight of the quote-unquote intellectuals is all the more severe given that pre-war capitalism took measures to produce them in excess of demand. The capitalists wanted to extend the mass supply of labor power to the field of intellectual labor and thus unleash unbridled competition that would depress wages, excuse me, salaries. It was from these circles that imperialism recruited many of its ideological champions for World War I. At present, all these layers are experiencing the collapse of the hopes they had placed in the war. Their conditions have become significantly worse. What weighs on them, above all, is the lack of security for their basic existence, which they still had before World War I. And then I'm going to read the next section, which is called Fascism's Mass Character, and then we'll open up to questions. Fascism's Mass Character. Masses in their thousands streamed to fascism. It became an asylum for all of the politically homeless, the socially uprooted, the destitute, and the disillusioned. What they no longer hoped for from the revolutionary proletarian class and from socialism, they now hoped would be achieved by a more able, strong, determined, and bold element of every social class. All these forces must come together in a community, and this community, for the fascists, is the nation. They wrongly imagine that the sincere will to create a new and better social reality is strong enough to overcome all class antagonisms. The instrument to achieve fascist ideals is, for them, the state, 
a strong and authoritarian state that will be their own creation and their obedient tool. This state will tower high above all differences of party and class and will remake society in accordance with their ideology and program. It is evident that in terms of the social composition of its troops, fascism encompasses forces that can be extremely uncomfortable and even dangerous for bourgeois society. This should ring a bell from yesterday. I'll go further and assert that these elements, if they come to understand their own best interests, must be dangerous for bourgeois society. Precisely, if this situation arises, then these forces must do what they can to ensure that bourgeois society is smashed as soon as possible and that communism is achieved. She's talking about socialists in that sentence. But events up to now have nonetheless demonstrated that any revolutionary forces within fascism are completely and totally outstripped and restrained by reactionary forces. What we see here is analogous to events in other revolutions. The petty bourgeois and intermediate social forces at first waver back and forth indecisively between the powerful historical camps of the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. They're induced to sympathize with the proletariat by their life suffering and in part by their soul's noble longings and high ideals, so long as it is not only revolutionary in its conduct, but also seems to have prospects for victory. Under the pressure of the masses and their needs and influence by this situation, even the fascist leaders are forced to at least flirt with the revolutionary proletariat, even though they may not have any personal sympathy for the proletariat. But when it becomes clear that the proletariat itself has abandoned the goal of carrying the revolution further, that it is withdrawing from the battlefield under the influence of the reformist leaders out of fear of revolution and respect for the capitalists, at this point, the broad fascist masses find their way to the spot where most of their leaders were, consciously or unconsciously, from the very start, on the side of the bourgeoisie. I think Marxism-Leninism as an ideology and a science is not something dogmatic, it's not a mechanical kind of ideology. You have to evaluate the specific circumstances right now faced by the working masses and different sectors of American society. This last section that we read reminded me of something that I had been studying for a little while is the recruitment tactics of fascists and far right-wing movements and how they often prey on people with mental illnesses or people who feel disenfranchised by the system. And we also have to keep in mind that a lot of people that fall into fascist organizations originally might not even be racist or right-wing. It's just that the ideology and the manipulation is very strong. That's all I wanted to mention. Lately, as back then with Hitler, people lately have been sanitizing fascism, forgetting its policies and rather focusing just on the tyrannical aspect of it. I also have to warn about the dangers of conflating fascism with communism because of the so-called, or it's a mutant form of socialism, where it's just big government and such. That's all I have to say. Thank you. How do we turn this obvious discontent and frustration with the system, which we know is misguided in its ideology, to the proper enemy of our class, which is the capitalist? Because Trump himself paraded as a savior and ally of the American working class, and by doing so, he won over so many to follow him 
even as far as trying to do a coup, do a right-wing revolution. So we have to improve the political consciousness of the American people. Right now it's very low. It has been low for as long as the American Republic has been around. There's been a lot of factors owing to this, but that is the task ahead for us, to improve the political and class consciousness of the American people through an all-sided development and for the party to lead them through the struggle to develop that. Capitalism is trying to use fascism to distract us and propagandize us into believing that it's acts on the way up and it's increasing. Like Trump brags about how great the stock market's doing when everything's crumbling around us. Really, it just it gives us less work and effort to fight against them because the whole time they're busy with the fascism and all of the distractions and they're sabotaging themselves. And while we think that we have to fight, that's just propaganda. Most of the time, we just really have to sit back like we did yesterday and watch them basically sabotage themselves. But yet we're not going to let up on them. But I think they're beating themselves up the most. That's not thank you. The conditions that Clara Zetkin is discussing here about the decay of capitalism and the upper strands of society into a process of proletarianization means that bourgeois ideology is brought with them. This decay is a deep fissure in the spiritual and moral constitution of the people, preparing them for exploitation by the reactionary finance capital. No better example exists of this than our own lived reality of the effects of the lockdowns, which have obliterated the petty bourgeoisie and labor aristocracy, setting the stage for a monumental reserve for a figure like Trump to lead to the brink of a fascist coup victory. With each passing day, Capitalism draws nearer to the conditions of a social revolution, and with each passing day, the contradictions in capitalism intensifies. Right now, I'm going to hand it over to read the statement put up by the Politburo last night. So this is the party's statement on the January 6th events in Washington, D.C. It is a Capitol Hill putsch on January 6, 2021, the day that Congress was set to ratify the results of the 2020 election. A far-right mob descended upon the Capitol with the explicit goal to conduct a coup in support of Donald Trump. This mob, consisting of supporters of failed movements such as the Confederacy, South Vietnam, and other anti-communist reactionaries, came together to support this anti-democratic, fascistic goal to install a reactionary dictatorship. There was very little resistance from the Capitol Police. However, once the mob reached the chamber's doors, there was a limited arms standoff, which resulted in the death of one of the far-right protesters. Despite this fact, it is clear that there was collusion between the fascistic forces and the Capitol Police. Police were seen interacting with the protesters in a friendly manner, taking pictures with them, shaking their hands, and even opening the gate for them. It is impossible for the police and the military to be unaware of a planned mass protest at the center of the federal government. How else could it be that for almost four hours, an mob be allowed to ransack the Senate and House chambers? Despite the mayor of Washington, D.C.'s request to send in the National Guard days before the protest, it was refused. It is more than suspicious that the request for the National Guard to be sent in was refused. It is a clear sign of collaboration between the police and the far-right mob. In response to the mob's attack, President-elect Joe Biden stated, our democracy is under unprecedented assault and called on Donald Trump to call for the protesters' immediate dispersal on national television. 
This note-toast response was an embarrassment, and it is unimaginable for the president-elect to not call for the arrest of those behind this attempted coup. If these had been Black Lives Matter, peace, or communist protesters, they would have, at best, been arrested before they even reached the steps of the Capitol. More likely than not, they would have been shot. Black protesters would most certainly have suffered a worse fate. Why did this insurrection happen now? After 300 years of this country's history, why are we only experiencing a situation such as this now? What has transpired is a result of capitalist decay. Our economic and political system has failed to adequately address the global pandemic that has accelerated our economic decline. The ruling class has run out of ways to continue to extract profit from working people, with neoliberal reforms resulting in a decades-long decline in the working class's quality of life and ever-rising unemployment. Only a united working class has the capability to make drastic social change because of their relationship to the means of production, factories, natural resources, and the labor force itself. From the Party of Communists USA Political Bureau. This is an important situation we're going through. You can hear it on the phone tonight by some comrades. They don't understand the United Front. They just don't get it. It's as if we went from Lenin in 1917 and we skipped everything else until we got to the 1950s. What happened to the 30s, 40s, and 50s? That's not even discussed by some comrades. We have to understand that Comrade Stalin was instrumental in the United Front. It could not have a united front if it wasn't for Comrade Stalin. How can we, as followers of Lenin and followers of Comrade Stalin, disagree with his pushing for a change in the Seventh Congress of the Comintern? Again, our enemy has to be to get rid of fascism. That's what the Soviet Union did. There would have been no Soviet Union if we didn't unite against fascism on an international level. For their own reasons, United States, France, Italy had their own reasons to join the alliance against Nazi Germany. But we have to be clear about it. We all know that if it wasn't for that, all the forces of Nazi Germany would have been aimed against the Soviet Union when they invaded. And the West would have done nothing. They would have sat down and done nothing because they would wanted the Soviet Union destroyed. So how we, as Bolsheviks, cannot understand the importance of the United Front. It behooves me. It's strange. One comrade said, we cannot be dogmatic. But yet some comrades are exactly dogmatic. This is the difference between a Bolshevik and the dialectical materialist analysis of things and a sectarian who just reads from a book and a quote and no matter what, no matter what, refuses to understand that Comrade Stalin was instrumental in the United Front. And that's all I wanted to say. Thank you. So this was just kind of a thought that went through my head yesterday as I kind of saw everything going on. So I'm not really sure how it was for everyone else in secondary school. But as a recent high school graduate, I can say with great certainty that the average person is taught that fascism basically just constituted Hitler's death camps in Nazi Germany, perhaps that it was quote-unquote authoritarian, and really not much else. 
omitting fascism's class character like this from the picture, which as we know is the open terrorist dictatorship of finance capital, per Dimitrov's definition. Now, this totally obfuscates things, making it therefore harder for the average person to recognize it. So I don't know, I just wonder how intentional this all was, uh, especially in light of what I saw the corporate media outlets doing yesterday, using words like authoritarian to describe Trumpism and describing the mob as anarchists, totally evading the word fascist altogether. What would the United Front consist of? Do we include the velvet glove? Like, where's the line drawn between those we want in the United Front and those who are fully on fascists that we're fighting against? Thanks. It's very clear. I don't know why we make it difficult. It's very clear. Stalin says it clearly. If anybody could say it clearly than Stalin, he makes it very clear. Dimitrov was his number one supporter, and he makes it clear. A united front means everybody, everybody in the working class movement, no matter what your political view is, if you support the Democrats, doesn't matter. That's what Comrade Stalin said. Doesn't matter. If you're opposed to fascism, you need a united working class movement, and it's called a united front. However, we've gone beyond that. We've gone into what we call the people's front or the popular front, and that is everybody, including elements, including elements of other bourgeois parties who want to fight against fascism. Does not mean we support them. If we get rid of fascism, then we're going to have another struggle with these bourgeois allies of ours. It's clear, comments. Thank you. I wholeheartedly agree on all of us having to have a respect for Stalin and, and everything that he did for the United Front. I understand enforcing that within the party, but is there a way that we're supposed to approach that in public with people who are not our comrades, who don't necessarily understand what we do about this? Or are we supposed to just die on that hill and just be public about it and try to reframe their perception? The question, comrades, comrades, we don't go to people in the street and talk about to them what Comrade Stalin said, if that's what you're alluding to. That's not what we're talking about. The logic of working together, everybody understands that. The only ones who don't understand that, in my experience, are the ultra-left. They don't understand that. Why should we work with elements of the capitalist class against another element of the capitalist class? That's the way they look at it. But the average person who is not an ultra understands that in unity there's strength, that when people are divided, they're not going to win. The average person who is not political, they understand that. So all we do is we explain to them we've got to join together, no matter what our views on other things, against fascism, because it's a threat. It's a threat to bourgeois democracy. What did Lenin say about bourgeois democracy? People forget what he said. He made it very clear that Bolsheviks and communists have to be the best defenders of bourgeois democracy. That's Lenin, not me. That's Lenin. Because he said the bourgeoisie are not going to defend bourgeois democracy, because they don't agree with it. So it's up to the communists. Thank you. What we're talking about now, due to the events yesterday, uh, we're speaking very much about local, national elements of this question. 
But I think that the imperialist elements of this movement are something to consider too, because imperialism will invariably strengthen this reaction and bring that open terrorist dictatorship onto not just the proletarians here, but in other countries. And that's something that I think we should all very much watch out for and oppose very openly, as well as the coup attempt here in the United States. I think it's important to emphasize that the heavy amounts of anti-communist propaganda in especially U.S. American daily life, media, schooling, all that, makes the threat of fascist indoctrination a lot stronger. It seems to me that the faux-revolutionary and false class appeal of fascism is a lot more effective if people think that's their only alternative, and if the idea of a communist alternative is so blockaded from their brain that they can't even see it. And so it just seems to me that one of the best and most important remedies is to emphasize the pro-communist message as much as possible consistently. When it comes to the whole idea of a popular front, especially with the anti-communist propaganda that most of us were raised in, most of us are the products of several decades of Red Scare propaganda. And so using a popular front tactic isn't just a good tactic safety-wise, because we'll end up dead if we don't do something like that. It's also a good tactic to undo some of that propaganda, because most people, when they get introduced to leftist ideology, the first thing that they get introduced to is the Nordic model or to anarchism, because they're portrayed in a much softer light than communism is. So utilizing a popular front tactic is good, not just safety-wise, but also tactically speaking. I feel like a lot of people, they kind of look at what happened yesterday, and then kind of think that it's kind of a, just a joke and nothing really happened except for just a riot and it's the location that mattered but the thing is like historically i'm not sure if anyone have brought this up yet today but in 1923 hitler also attempted a coup that failed completely that practically didn't change anything immediately it seems but the significance of that is that essentially the state and the fascists they kind of put on this farce that shows that if the fascists really want to, they can eventually take power with little resistance, right? As we saw that the police practically signal to the fascists by, you know, opening the gate for them and so on. So as much as like trying to look at this only through the immediate consequences, we should definitely see more on people's reactions to it and what this have like signal to the fascists and the state in between them? This is a really important class, definitely. I mean, I can hear it in the comrades' voices right now. And I just wanted to say we need to be careful about the way we analyze the situation, like Comrade Angelo was saying. It was interesting that he brought up those people who spelt America, America-KKKA. I think that was the Young Lords. That was a group in the 60s that was advocating for an independent Puerto Rico. But besides that, we need to actually have a correct analysis as Bolsheviks and see it for what it is. We don't need to make a mountain out of a molehill at this point. These people are wrecking themselves or sabotaging themselves. We can be better protectors of bourgeois democracy, of democracy, than they can. They've already shown their hand to be the enemies of democracy, of freedom. So as long as we continue with this popular front strategy and don't fall prey to any sort of sectarianism, we'll have the upper hand on them and hopefully never have to get in a shooting match.
sort of wanted to expand on what you said about Angela's point about what Lenin said about how communists at some point have to be the defenders of bourgeois democracy because the bourgeoisie, uh, at least the reactionary fascist elements of it, are not interested in defending their own system of governance. They're interested in taking off the glove, so to speak. So I just wanted to iterate that that point from Lenin is 100% true. I don't know exactly which piece of text it's from, but Lenin absolutely does make that point. So we've already sort of brought up the people who underestimate the events of yesterday. So I wanted to bring up certain comments I've heard that seem like certain comrades are overestimating the events of yesterday and thinking that we're already too far behind the level of organization and acquisition of resources that the fascists have. But I think that's thinking of this very undialectically in general and they weren't able to pull off the coup, and there is still time for us to out-organize them, to out-mobilize resources. But I think it's true that these fears, there's a truth under it, which is that we are in a race against time to out-organize them. But we have to remember that despite how easily they were able to get to the capital, it was extraordinarily unpopular what they did yesterday. And we should, thinking dialectically, we should tap into that and build up our mass movement. So... That's all I have to say. So three times now, U.S. finance capital has constructed fascist campaigns, first with the American Liberty League to overthrow FDR in 1933, second with the America First Committee to overthrow FDR in 1940, and now for a third time in a Save America campaign to overturn an election for Trump. American fascism continues to surround itself with national chauvinism draped in the U.S. flag, speaking of liberty, freedom, and democracy while practically destroying all three. The importance of an elevation of the progressive history of the U.S. cannot be emphasized enough. It is a weapon of the workers and the American people against bourgeois distortions and revisions of our struggle. However, we must take care to not fall victim to an exaggeration of U.S. capitalism and its conditions. It is decidedly not progressive, but it is also not currently fascist. We must appraise the U.S. objectively and build unity with the widest reach to confront the growing demoralization and fascization of our nation. I think that we need to come into these conversations and then lead these conversations with the understanding that there is materially the danger of fascism. Whether or not we are looking at fascism or it is a chance that it is looming on the horizon, we need to be prepared for any instance. And so I think that's the attitude we need to go forward with, that even if this is something that might be exaggerated in some circles or with some people's analysis, that if in the instance that it wasn't exaggerated, we would still be prepared. And I think that is the safest way to do it, and that is the only way to really be prepared for any scenario, because Situations like this can heat up or cool off at a moment's notice. I wanted to put my view on the popular front. I absolutely agree that we must not fall to the very dogmatic and sectarian behavior that the ultra-left will do, because quite frankly, the ultra-left and their dogmatic behavior is, in my opinion, doing the work of the fascists themselves by breaking up and putting us apart, and we must overcome that. Thank you. 
the events at the Capitol had a significant effect on me, and Dad wrote a song about it, and I had tell me to take down that song because it unnecessarily puts a target on my back. That's um, true, 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 true. I feel like that is the attitude the fascist wants us to have. And I'm curious what maybe my response to that should be. This is only a battle. We're going to have a lot of battles ahead of us, comrades. This is not the war. This is a battle. This war could take our whole lifetime. It could go beyond when I'm gone. When we're all gone, the war will continue. And there'll be a final battle. We should not, N-O-T, big letters, not sacrifice our sense with bourgeois ideas of martyrism. That doesn't help the movement. It doesn't help our cause. It only helps subjectively ourselves and how we view ourselves. But it does not. It does not, N-O-T, big letters, further our movement if we allow ourselves to get arrested and put in jail for a long period of time or to put our lives on the line just because we wanted to feel good about ourselves. This is a struggle. We're in an army. We work collectively. Lenin called it the general staff. The party is the general staff of the working class. That's army term. And that's all I want to say. I wanted to say in relation to what happened yesterday, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. And I think that's indicative of the Trump movement as a whole. And a lot of these reactionaries, they don't believe in anything. They don't believe in an ideology. They don't have an ideology. They're just reactionary. They latch on to that. And it's our job to teach the working class about uh, Marxism, Leninism. And in doing that, We didn't analyze liberty in America. The left has been decimated, and what's put in this place is a lot of ultra-left tendencies. And I think we need to analyze each and every one of us, our ultra-left tendencies, because I think there's a lot of it, and it needs to be dealt with. And if we don't deal with it, we're not being objective, and we're not being true dialecticians. Thank you, comrade. I'm planning a tabling activity. I had been planning it before this class, before the push. I was planning to do it under the banner of the party, um, but I'm thinking that maybe a better idea would be to do it as MPD, which is kind of our hub for a united front. Would that be better, or would it still be best to do that under the banner of the party? Definitely MPD. It's asinine to think that you're going to get further ahead in a place like the South with just the party. That is a flip coin to that. There are people, and I remember Comrade, who didn't want to deal with MPD. He came to the party. He was proud of the party. He was excited about the party. He wanted to tell the whole world about the party. So he did things as the party. And when he did that, he only got to a certain level and he couldn't go any further. But if we do it with MPD, we can get much further in certain areas. Uh, In regards to your question, I completely agree with Comrade Angelo. You should definitely be using MPD. Right now, a priority for every party member should be building MPD chapters. It's one thing for us to deal with things theoretically and tussle with all these different questions on how to approach it, but it's another thing to start getting active in building the popular front. So I definitely suggest using MPD. 
trying to reach out to other leftist and left-leaning organizations and getting them involved with MPD so you can build a presence in your community. This is something that we've been successful at with the Central Gulf Coast People's Council, and especially with PSL. They've been helping us a lot in terms of building that popular front. So that's just a little bit of advice and suggestion. I'm done. Thank you. I just want to say that uh, I feel as though a great task is presented in front of us. And we have to rise to the occasion because we are the ones who can properly deal with it. We have Marxist-Leninist theory, and we are the driving force for this. Thank you. We have to consider the ruling class is also looking at the situation and seeing the economic mess that we're all in and the fact that people are going to start getting unruly about this. So we have to put our solutions out there also. And I think MPD is a great way of vehicle, in other words, to carry that message. And also we need to have a strong message from the party as well as to our position and things that we can't back down on and that we have to fight for. I just wanted to maybe echo what the previous comrades were saying about MPD. Uh, I totally agree with that, and that's probably what we should really put a lot of our effort to. Anyways, my primary comment, though, is that as I was watching and sort of observing the coup that occurred yesterday, uh, I think this coup, it represents a milestone for the fascist movement in the U.S., and I think this should be a wake-up call for all communists. And as party members, it's time for us to go full tilt in organizing and party activities, especially when the time comes when COVID's no longer an issue. What I was going to say, just kind of like also echoing what some of the previous comrades said about MPD and the building up of those kind of organizations as a measure to build up the united front. And the comments like that were very helpful for me, especially as a newer comrade. I'm sure it was helpful to a lot of other newer members as well. Because I've had that question of, like, what can we be doing to kind of get this going? And it seems like just continuing to build up our own analytical base and then being able to kind of, like, continue to have those conversations and bring that analysis into the talks we have in our communities with our friends, our families, our coworkers, just anywhere that we can and as much as we can and as much as we have the opportunity to over the next coming who knows what the next year is going to bring. So the more we can get our views out there to people and build that political consciousness among the masses, I think the better the work that we're doing. I think in terms of empirical analysis, I can understand the position of Comrade Angelo. If we look at uh, Joe Biden, how are we going to establish any kind of relationship with his administration in the context of a united front? So the united front, with other progressive forces in America, I can understand it, but not with the Joe Biden administration. I suggest that everybody reread what Stalin and Dimitrov wrote. You've got to read what they wrote, comrade. This is not an ultra-left view, what Stalin and Dimitrov wrote. They wrote that not only for our work in our countries, 
but for also on an international level, the Soviets were working with, with the Western bourgeois societies. You know that, comrade. Everybody should know that. And they did that not because they said there's no difference. Of course we know there's a difference. We're Bolsheviks. But who was the main enemy at the time? It's called tactics and strategy. That's basically what the Comintern did. Tactics and strategy. That they saw clearly the main enemy of us, communists, at 1936 because of what was going on in Spain. The main enemy was fascism. And therefore, they called for a united front and a popular front against fascism. And I'm going with what they said. I think they were very clear and correct. That's all. That's my answer. Thank you. There's a lot of people on this phone who, based on the questions that were asked tonight, would highly benefit from listening to the United Front series that is already published on YouTube. A lot of the questions that were asked tonight are essentially carbon copies of questions that were asked in previous classes, and there are expansive responses to those questions that are readily available to everybody. The second thing I want to say is that I thought it was very interesting yesterday. The media came quickly to the defense of Joe Biden and the, the bourgeois republic, shall we call it. But if we look not too far back to the recent history, when this happened in Venezuela, right-wing racist thugs trying to take over the government, our media supported it. In Belarus, right-wing racist thugs tried to take over the government recently, or at least they were protesting heavily, and our media supported it. In Hong Kong, again, the same thing. Racist, rioters, right-wingers, media full-throatedly supports it. I want to say something on the difference between the Democratic and Republican Party. I think it is true that they're both imperialist parties, that they both engage in very similar foreign policies. But I want to draw a distinction between how they do so. The difference being between naked plundering and disguised imperialism. And I want to also mention that during the conditions of World War II with the victory of fascism in Germany, Italy, and Japan, that the more pressing contradiction that allowed the unity between the capitalist and socialist camp and the idea of peaceful coexistence was the threat of fascism against bourgeois democracy and more basically the market dominance of the capitalist countries at the time. So it's in that context that we can see the most chauvinistic, most imperialistic elements of finance capital. And I think that's where the distinction that we're drawing between the two parties comes from, especially since historically the Republican Party has been the center of reactionary and chauvinistic capital in the country. If you read Dimitrov, which I think people need to read, I think all of us need to read Dimitrov. Even if we read it, we got to read it again. That goes into detail that we do not love the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. He doesn't use those terms. He uses the term bourgeois party. He said that we are forced to work with them because of the situation. The reality has changed, and now we have fascism. Nowhere does he say at all, does Dimitrov say, that we have to get rid of our revolutionary positions on how we're going to bring socialism into our societies. He's basically saying very clearly that right now the fight is not for socialism right now. Right now the fight is against fascism. He makes it clear. And that's why the Trotskyites 
and the other ultra-lefts don't understand Stalin, don't understand Dimitrov, don't understand the United Front. They constantly said, constantly say, but the, all the bourgeois parties, they're all bad. Yeah, nobody's arguing. Of course they're all bad. But we have to get together those people who can join a movement to make it strong against fascism. Because if fascism wins, we will be in the same concentration camp, each of us, whether we're followers of the Democratic Party or followers of the Republican Party or Trotskyites or Maoists or Stalin people, we're all going to be in the same concentration camp, comrades. So that's our main struggle now, is against fascism. We didn't have that struggle 20 years ago, 30 years ago in this country. But we have it now. And that's all I want to say. Let's all read Dimitro. Thank you. Everyone have a good night and stay safe, comrades.